0: Hey guys, it's Ed, and I'm coming to you from the Bury Drunk Gossip Studios here in Detroit. And in honor of Toni Morrison, we are doing a writing episode. um, Because Toni Morrison was a great inspiration, even if... You didn't necessarily um, get into her writing. She was still an inspiration. Um she of course passed away this week at the age of eighty-eight. Um there as of um recording time there's been no talk about cause of death. But um I she was eighty eight and honestly, it, it wouldn't be unheard of for it just to be natural causes. Um, Toni Morrison, of course, was um, a Nobel laureate. Um, her seminal novel was *Beloved*. Um, but along with *Beloved*, there was *Song of Solomon*, *Sula*. Um, and I believe that there's one called Blue Eyes. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm really stunned right now. Um, here's why. Toni Morrison didn't publish her first novel until she was 40 years old. Um, it was published in 1970. Um, and she was a very pr- prolific reader when she was younger. She told the Los Angeles Times, when I was in first grade, nobody thought I was inferior. I was the only black in the class and the only child who could read. Um, I, and I'm sorry, the the other novel is not called Blue Eye. It's called The Bluest Eye. Um, and it's part of the CUNY, the... City University of New York curriculum. Um, you know, and Toni Morrison was definitely one of those people who you just loved. You know, you, you wanted to hear her speak. Um, i I've watched YouTube videos of her speaking. Unfortunately, I never got to see her live. I would have loved to, um, you know, and people think I'm being pretentious or suck up or whatever, but no, honestly, um, I really, truly admire and adore people who, I, I really, truly admire people who do this, um, who, who talk about writing, who love writing, um, as much as I do. Even if I'm not necessarily a hu- huge fan, I will, um, I will listen to what they have to say, and I will take from it what I can. Um, and, and Toni Morrison really loved writing. Um, she said, I didn't become interested in writing until I was about 30 years old. I didn't really regard it as writing then, although I was putting words on paper. I thought of it as a very long, sustained reading process, except I was the one producing the words. And honestly, that's, that's what writing is. You know, a lot of times writers are writing for themselves. Um, and and that's just the way it is. so one of her other quotes I just love um, is "I know how to write forever i don 't think I could have happily stayed here in the world if i if i didn't not have a way of thinking about it, which is what writing is for me it's control. Nobody tells me what to do it 's mine it's free, and it's a way of thinking it's pure knowledge. you know she she gifted us so many things and the world is a, a little bit less smart a little bit less knowledgeable without her in it um so this episode is dedicated to you Tony Morrison thank you for everything you've done for us thank you for sharing your knowledge with the world and with that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's writing episode. Um, we'll be back with high gossip later um, in the week. But for right now, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back. And I'm back. And in a bit of shameless self-promotion, um, just really fast. Um, and, and when I do this, I'm actually going to talk about the process and whatnot that um we're doing but um if you're a writer and you have a holiday story in mind um please please feel free to um send your short holiday stories to the writers club nyc at gmail.com um we're accepting stories up to um Ten 000. We'll consider stories that are a little bit longer than that, but um, we're, we're saying 10,000. We'll we'll take it on a case-by-case basis for a longer story. Any genre. Um, so send in those stories for us. And when I say us, I, for those of you who don't know, I run two writing groups. One is Shut Up and Write, uh, which was founded... In San Diego, or San Francisco, I'm sorry, and it is worldwide. And I just happen to run uh, a chapter in New York. And the other writing club that I run is called the Writing Club NYC, <coughs> or the Writers Club NYC, rather. When um, I co founded it with Leanne, who you all know from when she co hosted with me. Um, Leanne went on a bit of a hiatus to concentrate on her work, um, uh, so I've been running the group alone for a while now, and we have been doing, we have had anthologies, um, lined up, but when I took on this whole responsibility of running the club, I kind of took a step back from that, uh gear myself uh, in a different way. With Will's help and encouragement, we're relaunching the anthologies. We're starting off with a holiday um, collection. And honestly, the idea for an anthology came from um, scout media owner, writer, and editor, Brian Paoni. He also write, uh, runs Fiction Writing on Facebook, which is a large group of fellow writers. Um, his scout media does, um, an of words theory, um, series of anthologies where there's always like a theme. <clears throat> uh, Will and I decided to go in a different way. The first one, the first anthology that I edited was, is called The Secret Lives of New Yorkers. It's available now on Amazon and, uh, I came up with the theme, um, Leanne, well, I, I had the germ of an idea and Leanne and I worked it out together um, to something that was more malleable. Um, but, one of the things that, and you all know, I always talk about how brilliant Will is. And because he is, he really is brilliant. Um... But one of, the, um, one of the things that he said to me was, you'll get more submissions if, if we do genres rather than doing themes or um, prompts. So I said, all right, you know, I, I can get on board with that. You're probably... Okay, it didn't happen that fast. I actually did think about it for a little bit. But uh, ultimately, ultimately, after doing some research and whatnot, I came to the conclusion that he was right. And I guarantee you he's going to isolate that section, and it's going to be his ringtone. (laughs) Um... But there are, you know, like romance is very broad. Sci-fi is very broad. Um, mystery is actually very broad. So what I, what I wanted to do was kind of narrow in a little bit more. So um, we're doing subgenres, not just genres. Um, holidays is our first one. And I just have to leave that one broad. Uh, Because I want it open to everybody. I don't care what holiday is written about. As long as the holiday is there and it's leading us to something. Um, the rest of it is just... Whatever it is. You know, whatever you want it to be. I'm cool with that. Um... I think there are going to be two rules. It has to be a real holiday. I have no made-up holidays. Even, um, even if it was made up by a, like, the OC had some weird holiday. That doesn't count. A real holiday, like, um, Christmas, Kwanzaa, um, Thanksgiving, um, I'm Hanukkah. Um, Any of those holidays are fine with me. Um, You know, so the way we're opening submissions today and we're, they'll be open until October 1st. We're, we're paying writers royalties. And, you know, I've talked about this before. Paying writers is not a nice thing to do. It is the right thing to do. It is the only thing to do. Um, eventually, I want to flip the business model from what we have now, uh, where we're just paying writers royalties, to um, actually just buying the stories outright. That'll come in time. Um, You know, it's not... It's not... um, I don't want to say it's not easy. But the club is still fairly new. Um, Just barely a year old at this point. And we've not done any fundraising because why would we? Um, So, what I'm going to do is, at least for this tome, for the holiday book, they're going to be paid royalties. Um, I believe the Of Words series pays royalties to writers. Um, The other, another group that I'm part of, Zombie Pirate Publishing, um, they actually pay writers up front. Um, I believe they pay them like 10 or $20 um, for an accepted story if, um, depending on the length and whatnot. Um, and putting together when I was putting together Secret Lies it, it was very stressful. Um, I ended up doing the majority of the work and it, it was very, I got really stressed out um, without even meaning to. Uh, um, and I think that there's something to be said for asking for help when you need it. Um, now that we're relaunching, Will has said that he's going to give me a hand in, um, in the process. Uh, and I, I learned my lesson going through The Secret Lives. Um, you know, I know what I want in a story, I know what I'm willing to accept and what I don't want to accept. Um, so going forward, I think it's going to be fairly, fairly simple. It's just going to be a matter of, um, getting the submissions in. Um, I use Scrivener to, to um, organize the book. And it, it was, the great thing about Scrivener, in case you don't know, is it does all the formatting and everything for you. Which is a huge, huge, huge relief. Um, I, I really can't overstate what a huge relief it is. For Scrivener to, for Scrivener to um, do the formatting. Um, I'll be doing some light editing and whatnot. But, but, so this you know, I know how to get everything ready for. Uh, I know how to get everything ready for Amazon now. So that's, that's the big news. That's the big writing stuff that is happening right now. Again, if you're a writer, please send your submissions um, up to 10,000 words. Um, send the whole story to the Writers thewritersclubnyc at gmail.com. If you're going to do more than 10,000 words, query us. Um, tell me the basic premise of the story. And why do you need more than 10,000 words? And um, I'll, I'll give you a yay or nay. If the story's already written, great. If, if it's not, if you're writing it fresh, please. Um, I'll try to keep it under 10,000. But uh, you know, I know things happen. And I'm a little bit flexible on word count. Like if it's 10,100, I'm not going to complain. And I'm not going to complain about taking a break and coming right back. And I'm back. And I'm working on a theme piece about our topic, our special topic today. Um, because it really bothers me. Um, and it really bothers me as a romance writer. Now, I'm not strictly romance. Um, I don't think that comes as a surprise to anybody. Um... You know, I I like to write romance. I like to write uh, mystery. I'm working on a noir right now. I'm working on a um, short story, sci-fi, mystery type thing. um, With a really cool concept, I just... With that, guys, I'm just going to be honest. It's hella hard. (laughs) Um, Will, Will, to his credit, is helping me. Um, He's helping me work through... Um The areas where I'm blocked with that. Um, but romance is something I always return to, because I really love it. Um, I really love creating the connection between characters and figuring out the different scenarios. Almost all of my stories have some sort of romance cooked into them just by virtue of, I believe, romance sells, and I believe it's great. Um, I also believe it's one of the harder genres to write. Um, And I get asked often why I believe that. The truth is, I believe that because, first of all, Romance authors get no respect. You tell someone you read a romance, it was almost like you just said, I killed your dog. They give you weird looks and whatever. Um, you the, the pay is not great. I mean, sales are always there. That, and that's the good thing about romance is if you write a good one, um, the book will continue selling. It's how Harlequin has stayed in business. Um, you know, my my book Shape of Love, which came out last last year, is still selling fairly well. Um, the Megan Kelly book has passed its prime. Um, in my short stories. Um, that are up on Amazon have kind of subsided. But Shape of Love just continue, continually gets sales. Not, not very many because I haven't really promoted it, but, you know, when I do go out and I do promote it, I do see an uptick in sales. Um, so I think there's something to that. Um, and over the last week, you guys know I I always read the gossip blogs and Deadline and TV Line and all of that, so I stay up to date. Um, Jeffrey Hirsch, who is the CEO of Showtime, kind of, um, he kind of... Proves my point for me, that romance writers get no credit at all. Uh, <clears throat> Showtime's signature show is Outlander. For those of you who don't know, Outlander is a romance slash sci-fi um, story. It follows Claire, who's a nurse turned doctor and time traveler, who goes back in time and meets and falls in love with Jamie Frazier. Jamie is played by Sam Hoogan. I think that's how you say his name. And for the record, Sam is gorgeous. All right. And he is often out, seen outside of his clothes. Um, but instead of, you know, talking about how it's a, it's a date show... Or talking about how, um, you know, I believe the show has won a couple of Emmys. I know it's nominated for a couple of Emmys um, in, like, the technical categories. Um, And, you know, instead of leaning into that sort of thing, um, Hirsch decided to lean into the female gaze. Here's what he said. Outlander, you can say that it's great because women like it because she's a surgeon who goes back in time. But there's also another side of that, which is there's some eye candy for that audience. And people like when Sam has his shirt off. You have to be really thoughtful about when you're looking at a piece of content and whether or not it's really going to be female or not. And it's not easy. I think he, I it, it would behoove me to put this out there. I think... I think he was trying to make a broader point um, about what's going to appeal to um, a certain demographic. Um, But the big takeaway from this was that you don't need to have sharp writing. You don't need to have anything as long as your hero is naked all the time, and... if that's the case, then... the female audience will come. And that's just not the case, honestly. Um, as I've... grown as a writer, and Lord knows I really hope I have. <laughs> but as I've grown as a writer... I have learned a, a few things. Um, most of you know, if you don't know, I'm, I'll say it again, and then I'll keep saying it. I don't view writing like other writers do. Um, most other writers view it as a hobby or as, a, um, as an art. Um, Will certainly views it as an art, and he's brilliant. I view it as a business. So when I write a story, I usually know who my audience is who I'm targeting, um, who the audience is, who I'm going to be targeting in my marketing, how I'm going to market this story, and whatnot. Um, one of the things I learned very early in my writing career was the biggest consumer of gay romances is straight women. And as I started looking, I, th- I think that the whole reason is because there were a lot of men writing straight romances and either being very misogynistic about it, where the woman needed the man, or the, the lead female character was one-dimensional. She was either a career woman or man-hungry. There was no in-between. But whereas with a gay romance, there was a little bit more nuance. And, you know, the author of the Outlander series, Diana Gabolden, I think that's how you say her name. Diana, if you're listening and that's not how you say your name, I'm very, very sorry. I really do adore you. Um, she sounded off on Twitter. She said, what they mostly say, um, she was talking about how fans write to her and tell her how they watch the show and whatnot. She said, what they mostly say is they like the, the intelligence of the story and the complexity and strength of the relationship between Jamie and Claire. They also love the visual beauty of the show and the emotional depth of the acting. And then she, almost directly to Hirsch. She said, if you're looking for a place to lean in, though, I think maybe intelligence might be a good place to start. And, you know, first of all, it takes balls. And I will say this time and time again. It takes balls for someone to go after the man who renews or cancels shows, um, because Diana gets money for every episode of Outlander that's produced. Um, not only I think I believe she is a um, a producer on the series, but she also created the show that this. Um, she, she she created the story that the show is a on, so therefore she gets a piece of that pie so for her to s- come out swinging I really have a lot of respect you know some people will say she has nothing to lose you know and she's made millions of dollars off of this series already that may be the case but there's there's still so much more story to tell um, there are still more episodes of Outlander to produce. Um, and she's really putting her, her contract, her book contract, um, in jeopardy. Um, because, you know, all these, with all these mergers and whatnot, her publisher is probably a CBS or Viacom subsidiary. And that's gonna really um, tighten the the ropes a little bit, I think. But right now, I'm gonna take a breath, get some coffee, and start planning my theme piece on that. (laughs) I'm gonna go and I'm gonna come right back. And I'm back. So one of the things that I've been struggling with a little bit is quantity over quality. Does being a prolific writer make you sell more? Clearly, if you're an article writer, um, it will definitely, definitely help you earn more money. Because obviously, the more you write, the more, um, the more you write, the more you are going to make. But when it comes to, like, book sales and whatnot, does quantity or quality matter more? If you look at the Brandon Sanderson model, he writes really long books. And he's also putting out two or three a year, so he's very, very prolific in those terms. Um, I'm currently reading The Way of Kings based on real suggestion. And... Um, it's 1,200 pages. And obviously, The Way of Kings is a... I don't want to say an older book, but it, it is definitely not a recent release. But I, w- I went to the bookstore and I was checking out the Sanderson section. And he has quite a few books out. With more coming out this year. um, I th- He's already released one this year, I believe. And I believe there's one or two more, um scheduled for release Um, or you look at James Patterson who is releasing a book a month and that's not an exaggeration Um, Patterson is literally um, putting out at least one book a month sometimes upwards of two or three and, you know, it really got me to thinking, as an indie writer, what really matters more? Um, there's a fabulous group on Facebook called 20 to 50K, which is basically, um, you need to release 20 books, novellas, or short stories to start bringing in $50,000 annually in royalties. Now, that seems like a lot, and it kind of is, but it also kind of, it makes a lot of sense, and it's one of those things where until you start bringing in money, you probably should keep your day job. Thankfully, my day job is writing, so. Um, but you know, we we look at it, and the advice on there is, it's just so phenomenal, and there are so many talented writers, who are freely giving advice to, people like me who are, are just coming up, are just you know, yes, I've re- technically I've released. One, two, three... Technically, I've released three books. Um, I'm part of an anthology. um, And I'm working on becoming part of a couple more anthologies. Uh, Will is working on becoming part of some anthologies. So... You know... How do you really, how do you really, really start to figure out how to do all of this? You know, what is, what is the way that you make your determination of quantity over quality? Or can it be both? And here's where I'm falling. I Like I told you guys before, I have like four or five manuscripts on my computer right now. They just need some polishing and I could blast those out and probably get... Um, I could probably get some, some additional revenue coming in. And... Uh, I'm, probably, I'm, I'm definitely going to do that at, at some point. I just need to sit down and make sure that those are polished enough. Um, there are some... Uh, there's at least three action books, which thrillers are always, always in style. Let me just say that up front. Um, thrillers, adventure, always in style. Um, they will... <coughs> They've all less salt there's a there's a short little um action romance novella that i'm I, I've been working on editing um, there is a there's a nonfiction book or two that I've really worked on um, trying to um, well, the, the, the one nonfiction book is called Hashtag Your Way to Success, and Amazon has just been so douchey about that. Like, I, I actually had to go through the process of copywriting it um, with, with the Copyright Office, which is not something that you normally have to do. Once you write something, um, the copyright is yours. And you know, after after even after all that, they still haven't let me release it yet. Which means I'm gonna probably have to change um, some of the uh, some of the content because times are changing. So. What's going to be Volume 1 should have actually been Volume 2 in the Hashtag Your Ways to Success um, series. But we'll push on. (laughs) Uh, Actually, 100% honesty here, I was actually hoping I could get Hashtag Your Ways to Success um, to be a textbook. um, Or a book that people who... Who are learning social media advertising learn. And speaking of speaking of advertising, like how I segued right into that, a lot of people, there's a very strong contingent of people who say it doesn't matter how fast you write, how prolific you are, or even how good the book is, if you can advertise it right and hit the right market. It's going to continually continually sell no matter what. And as proof of this, they point to E.L. James, whose fifty shades of gray um became a phenomenon. It entered the pop culture zeitgeist in a way that only Twilight and Harry Potter had recently. Um, and it really changed the way we view things. But it's terribly written. All three books are horrible. Actually, there's four books now. Um... I've, I've only read a couple pages of the first one, but it was just so bad, I had to stop. <laughs> but, you know, it, with the right marketing and whatnot, E.L. James was actually able to become very, 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 very wealthy. Um, at her height, she was making a million dollars per week off of just the books alone, I can only imagine that that number has climbed with the movies and um other merchandise. Yes, there's other merchandise. We're going to talk about that another day. For right now, though, leave me comments on Facebook or Instagram at author Ed Anderson, or Twitter at author Ed A, or leave me a an anchor voice message and tell me quantity or quality. What do you prefer from an author? I'm going to be right back. And I'm back. And uh, I wasn't actually planning on doing this. So this is really off the cuff. <laughs> um, and Will is going to murder me. Uh, y'all already know this. Um. But again, you know, and I know why Will wants me to be prepared, but... Sometimes things happen, and sometimes episodes through no fault of my own take a different theme than what I was planning or thinking about. This episode has taken, uh, taken the theme of relationship drama within the celebrity world, and... It's very reminiscent of um, the article I wrote, What Tales of the City Can Teach Soap Operas. Um, That's over on HVY.com. But one of the main arguments I make in that article is every story, especially for soap operas, should revolve around or go back to a love story. Um, the main arc in, Tales of, uh, in the new Tales of the City um, that debuted on Netflix, and I don't know why my voice just went not like that, um, puberty, uh, the main arc in the new Tales of the City that debuted on Netflix last month uh, was Anna Madrigal being blackmailed. By a mysterious person. So. How do you. How did that end up. Creating love stories. And created complications for. Mouse and his boyfriend Ben. Who went from. Being happy in their situation. With Ben spending most of the nights Over. At Michael's house. To having to decide whether whether or not they wanted to live together. And that sounds like really dull drama. But it's very true to life. And frankly. I was really really happy with how. Um, they played everything out. Again it was very very real. And it hit all the. It hit all the spots that. Um, it should have, and then after, after they decided that no, they didn't want to live together, there was more relationship drama from the fact that Mao's had um, accepted her, uh, an invitation to live with his ex boyfriend, uh, um, and this led to really big fireworks. Uh, the blackmail pushed. Marianne and Brian together. Um, they had been married. They broke up when her career started to take off and she didn't want to be with him anymore. And then they realized, hey, we still love one another. Um, their, the daughter with their daughter, Shauna, also kind of pushed them together um, and created very realistic... realistic and soap opera terms... Tension within their relationship. Um, Shauna, unwittingly and unknowingly, was sleeping with her, uh, with her best friend's and, um, blackmailer. Shauna and Anna were were best friends, and it was almost it was very very cute. First of all, um, and very very clever how they did it, how they. Passed the torch down to from Anna to Shauna it um, so that obviously that coupling did not last and f- um and then finally we found out that the blackmail actually started because of a love story um of Anna's that happened in the 1960s in San Francisco um it was uh, for those of you who don't know Anna Magical um is a transgender woman and she was I believe the very first um pop culture transgender character um and she was definitely a template for many 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 other transgender characters that would come following her So um, so they passed they pass the Tales of the city towards to Shana. Will there be more tales? I definitely hope so. But again, it, they learn how to connect everything right back to um, relationships and whatnot. And that's what soaps used to do so well. That's why soaps used to be so popular. You know, I, every time I turn on Netflix now, Tales of the City is near or at the top of the trending, near or at the top of the popular. So Netflix has to be happy with what they did. Um <coughs> would not be an episode without me coughing, right? Um, and what Jackie Collins did better than anybody else, any other writer, bar none, is she told exciting stories. Uh, Exciting stories that connected because each and every one of her tales went back to a love story. Um, The main love story in the Lucky Santiago Santiago series was um, between Lucky and I and her I keep calling call him Cooper. I don't think that's right. Um, looking at her husband and Um You know, that that series went on for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven uh, hold on, I lost count six. Seven, eight, nine. It was a ten book series, um, just like Tales of the City, actually. So, um, she did something right. <laughs> um. And you know the. The whole thing has always... Um, the whole thing has always been... Um, revolving around... Uh, Lenny Golden. That's Lucky's name uh, husband's name. Sorry. Uh, it was going to bother me because, like I said earlier, I've read all the books. Um. Uh, so, you know, it was one of those things that was going to keep nagging me until I actually got, the an- got my answer. Anyways, um... All of the threats from the time Lucky and Lenny got together were about their relationships. Or them working together. As, um, such was the case in the Sant- Santangelo's um... I I realized earlier I butchered the name. It happens. Um like I told you this was not a planned segment, so um and in the last few books Jackie um the Santangelos was always going to be the finale of the Lucky series. But she had started to thread in Future stories for um, Bobby and um, Bobby Santangelo and Max Golden, Lucky's children. And I, I truly believe to this day that if she had survived, if she were still alive, we would be looking at the Max Golden series now. Because she was doing everything to set up the future of this series. And, and that's what I want to tell writers um, before I go. If you're writing a series, everything has to go back to the love story. I know you may not like it. I know maybe it's not your thing. But it is what will keep the series going. Like I said, um, Jackie Collins had 28 novels 29 novels, 28 or 29 novels published. 10 of those were from this series. And the reason for that is because they were, she knew what she was doing. Um, The Power Trip is probably one of her most popular um, recent books. And again, it revolves all around (coughs) it revolves all around Her, um, I'm trying to think of the proper way to say this, it revolves around her uh, building love stories. And she was probably the best at doing that. Rest in peace, Jackie. And y'all, I'm going to take a break and come right back. And I'm back. So this week I was having a conversation with a friend and we talked about being prolific. Um, in in this context, it was about how many words we can put out, or how many projects we can put out. Um, you know, I'm known to put out anywhere from three to six articles a day, um, and that's not including any short story or novel work I do. And while I'm here in Michigan, I have a goal of starting and completing a novel, a psychological thriller novel, based on an idea that came to me um, when I was perusing Whisper one night. Um, and for the record, I people always look at me funny when they say I say I was looking at Whisper. I look at it to get story-slash-article story ideas. And this one... Um, This One whisper just kind of hit me in this way where it really resounded. And the three main characters presented themselves almost immediately. Um, And then the plot points just started coming. So my goal is I'm going to um, start the book on Monday. And my goal is by the time I leave to return to New York, I want to have the entire book completed. That's 50,000 words, give or take. And what amounts to up right around two weeks. Can I do it? Should I do it? Um, those are answers that I'll have to give you after I've already tried this. Um, but there's a there's a group that I'm a part of on Facebook that it actually encourages writers to be more prolific, and it, and it actually says. If you get to a certain amount of books, you can make um, what most people consider a middle-class middle class wage. And this is, of course, if you're self-publishing on Amazon, not necessarily if you're publishing with a traditional publisher. But it, that kind of got me... You know, the group always gets me thinking um, and whatnot about how I can strategize better, because I have the ideas, it's just about actually getting them done, because I'm always writing articles, I'm always, you know, I'm always writing an article, I'm always doing some work, um, and it would be so much better if I could actually pivot and just focus on writing, still write articles, still do all that, but maybe on a lesser, on a lesser scale. That being said, I'm not quite sure um, how this is going to go. I may be pulling out my hair by the end. Um, You know, when when you're doing NaNoWriMo, they tell you for 30 days it's um, like 1,700 words, 1,667. So... I'm cutting that in half, so that means I need to do at least 3,400 words a week, or a day, on this project, in order to complete it in my self-imposed deadline. That means there's going to be a lot of typos, there's going to be a lot of plot holes, but at least I'll have a manuscript done, and I can possibly fix it and get it out in a more timely manner. Um... I could possibly get it out, um, before the end of the summer. Uh, and I could possibly give it a big marketing push, but, again, it's gonna go back to how much, um, excuse me, how, how fast I can get this done. I look at someone like James, James Patterson, and he's putting out, a book a week basically and he gets away with it because he uses co-writers I'm not using a co-writer on this it's just me and that's I think that's where it gets kind of scary because everything is falling on me and of course you know I do have other other books that I could start putting out I just want to make sure that they're also ready to go and at this point, I just haven't had time to take a really good look at him to see what's going on. Um, you know, I, and I look at Will's stuff. Like, I was, I, re- I read Will's book, which is fantabulous. Also, we need to wish Will a happy birthday. Um, it was, His birthday was this week. So if you guys could leave him a voice message on Anchor, say happy birthday, Will. Let him know how much you love him and how much you love him on the political segment segments and please don't pretend like you don't i see the stats y'all love when he goes on his little rants all right (laughs) um so uh, go to um voice messages at anchor leave him a voice message let him know that way he can hear and i will i will personally make sure he responds to all the love um but you know will is a much slower writer than i am but he's also much more methodical. Every line comes from somewhere in, in the story. And I know that sounds weird, but... Um, there's nothing that's said or done... That doesn't directly impact the story... Um, in the future. Something as simple as... Him saying, she crossed the room... Will come back in a big way later on. And it, you know, with me, sometimes I just throw in a sentence just because I think it's funny, like, new gun who diss. <laughs> sometimes I'll just throw things in just to lighten it up and make it funny. Or in my latest fantasy short story, um, I go from having one of the team members die to one of the characters doing the helicopter with his penis. You know, typical Ed stuff. Um, and Will was like, when Will wrote it, he was like, great, very in character. Not sure it worked here. Not sure you should have tried that there. Um, but you know, you never know unless you try, right? And that's exactly the stance I'm taking with this whole um, writing a novel in two weeks thing. You never know until you try. And you never know when I'm going to take a break. But you always know I'm going to come right back. And I'm back. So... The news broke yesterday that Suzanne Collins is indeed going back to The Hunger Games well. Uh, she's going to be writing a prequel to the hit Young Adult series. Set um, approximately 65 years before the event of the original Hunger Games. Um and I, you know I don't know how to feel about this first let me read her statement she says with this book I wanted to explore the state of nature who we are and what we perceive is required for our survival and then she says the reconstruction period 10 years after the war commonly referred to as the dark days as a country of Panem struggles back to its feet, back to its feet, provides fertile ground for characters to grapple with these questions and thereby define their views of humanity. Um you know we I when I say we, Will and I give JK Rowling a lot of shit because she can't seem to leave the Harry Potter verse alone. You know, she's constantly changing something up, or this character was gay, or this character was black, or, you know, this character was a disabled black character, and where's my medal? Uh, for the record, she's never actually said, Where's my medal? that I know of. Um, but, you know, she keeps changing the backstory and keeps changing. All of these things about Harry Potter... And every time she does... The series loses a little bit of its magic. Now, I'm not one that's that's precious about Harry Potter... Or anything like that, really. But at some point, you do have to ask yourself... When is enough enough? When can you start to say, hey not cool, man, not cool, like, leave this shit alone, and let, let people just enjoy it for what it is, you know, when she first revealed that Dumbledore was gay, it kinda made sense, she'd done enough hinting at it that I don't think anyone really questioned whether or not she was telling the truth. But then, and this is when I started questioning, um, when she said that Hermione was always intended to be black. But nowhere in the, nowhere in the description did she say that Hermione was black. And, I mean, she never had a problem specifying race with any of the other characters. So, what was it about Hermione that she just couldn't come out and say, hey, she's the black character? Um, and honestly, my best guess here is Hermione wasn't black. Uh, uh, Hermione probably, she's probably decided that Hermione was black right around the time they casted a black actress as Hermione in, um... Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And again, you know, no one's going to take that away from her. If that's what she wanted, if that's what she intended, fine. But she should have made it clear that that's what she intended instead of um, threading us along. Um, you know, and she had a lot of power over the Harry Potter movies. So why not have an actress of color cast as Hermione if that's indeed what was supposed to happen. Now, you know, she says, oh, we just cast the best best actresses that we could find at the time. Which, again, negates everything she's saying and doing. Um, But back to Suzanne Collins. Um, Her returning to Panem could be a really good thing. You know, The Hunger Games are a great series of books. Um, I read them in a weekend. I Mandy read them really fast. Dave read them really fast. Um, so the fact that all three of us were able to read them and be engaged with them speaks volumes to her talent as a writer. And I know you all know the book is coming. And here it is. But this could also turn into a Stephanie Meyer situation where... You go back to the well one too many times, and it, it really just doesn't do anything for anybody anymore. Um, I We're going to find out on May 19th, 2020, when the prequel hits the bookshelves. And until then, well, not until then, I will be right back. And I'm back. So... <clears throat> One of the things that I've really been, um, thinking about lately is pulp fiction, not the movie starring John Travolta, Um, but back in the early 1900s, there's a genre of, uh, a literary genre called pulp, and it was basically exaggerated. It was, um, a lot of it was crime. And it was just really super duper exaggerated. Um, really, um, I don't want to say the quality was bad, but, um, the writers were paid to write, um, 25,000 or more words a week. And if you think that doesn't happen now, let me tell you, it does. Um, some of the serialized romance novels that you buy on Amazon or um, any of these other self-publishing sites, there's probably a writer out there who made just a little bit of money. Um, I think the most I ever made doing doing that was like eighty dollars for um, eighty dollars for like twenty five thousand words. Um, yeah, on Upwork, they really screw you. That's why I don't recommend it unless you have a client, like a an ongoing client, um, and you're getting a decent, decent wage. Um, and, and truth be told, I actually, I, I made a lot of money doing it, but it's because I can write fast. And um, as I said before, I don't edit. I just write and I'll go back and look for commas and things like that. But um, with Pulp Fiction, the more you could, pro- the more you could produce, the more you could make. So there were some writers getting really rich off of this idea um, of just mass producing these books. Um, you know, and again, it's kind of we're kind of falling back into that same pattern now where if you want to write a cozy mystery series, um, it's suggested that you have at least five or six books done and three or four in the hopper ready to um, publish and you have to be ready to publish every six weeks. Uh, That seems a little excessive to me, but um, that's what a lot of people recommend. Uh, and, And the same thing with romance. So why am I talking about this? Well, y'all know I'm a big fan of Apple News Plus. Because I get to read all these magazines for free. Well, not for free, for 10 bucks a month. Uh, I read my Entertainment Weekly. I read my people. um, And now they've added the writer to it. And so I was... Since I try to um, stay up in my industry and know what's going on, I was reading a this article about Pulp and how it's making a comeback. And, you know, one of the things uh, um, that Natalie said about my writing is it's very pulpy, not in a negative way. Um, But, you know, my heroes are exaggerated. My villains are exaggerated, especially in one of the short stories I asked her to read. Um, And, you know, the twists are really outrageous. Given that I'm a soap opera fan, I don't think that that should really shock anybody. Um, But as I started thinking about it, I realized I'm probably the new modern pulp pulp writer because I really can. Um, Meredith, who you guys will hopefully meet one day, if I can never get her to co-host with me. Um, Meredith is always amazed because I, you know, my true crime articles, I just knock out of the park. There's six, seven hundred words that I can do three or four in a day. Um, On top of writing my fiction and whatnot. Um, One day during Shut Up and Write... Um, Which is uh, one of the writing groups that I'm in charge of. I finished the complete first part of a serialized erotic novel. And it just blew her mind. And none of this is to brag. um, Even though it sounds very braggy. Um, But it, it is to say, like... This is something that's really starting to make like a comeback, and I think um, publishers are starting to notice. Um, I can't think of the the um, the print name. I think it's called like hard crime something, like hard crime stories, um, and they're very much in the business of of pulp. Um, Stephen King has written two or three books for them. Um, And a lot of the really big authors... But Stephen King is by far the the most popular. um, That's written for them. His book Joyland, which I think is becoming a movie or a TV series. um, Was written for them. And... You know... And I actually did read Joyland. um, Just because I was really curious about it. And... You know, it it's very much what you would expect a pulp book to be, and so and, you know, as I read it, I started thinking like, I could do this, and then Will and I were talking, and there's actually a sub genre of of pulp called train pulp. Now, what train pulp is is it's a book that you read on the train Um, he mostly reads on his phone and so when he's commuting in and out of the city you know he'll read that he'll read something Um, and so then I started thinking well I think that's a really interesting concept to be honest with you like how do you know? You know, like... How do you know what train pulp would be? How do you know what just regular pulp is? You know, and is there, like, a a, a plain pulp? Is there a... And there is. Harlan Coben wrote, um... Um... Oh, I cannot remember what the title of that book is. I'm blinking right now. This is... This is one of those times when I should say that, um, Will, Will is right, but, you know, not going to happen. Anyways, he, I mean, just his writing style, period, but this particular book, um, was about, um, a guy who promised his girlfriend that he would never try to find her. And then, oops, he goes and tries to find her, (laughs) Big surprise, right? Um, And it was just one of those things where... If you know anything about Harlan Coben... Then you know that... He is very, very much... A believer in throwing everything into the pot... And seeing what sticks. Um, And in this book, you can really see... Um, that really shines through because it starts out where he just figures that the ex wanted to run off and be with another guy, and then it kind of takes a left turn, and um, she was never married to the guy, and then he thinks it's a cult, and then he thinks it's this and that, and it's just this wild conspiracy ride, and... And this is no exaggeration. I read. I started reading it um, on my flight. I was come. I was leaving San Diego, coming home to New York, and it was like four or five hundred pages. And in that four-hour flight, I finished the entire book because that—that's just how good it is. It really grabs you. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, "Yeah, this is very much pulp. This is." Um, Probably the very definition of pulp. So, I'm going to go and I'm going to come right back. And I'm back. So, one of the things that I've really been thinking about when it comes to writing is building up a back catalog. Now, let me explain why this is. A couple years ago, I went to a writer's digest conference and I sat through a session where, um, and I cannot remember their name. It was a husband and wife team. The husband wrote the books and the wife, um, did all the accounting and marketing for the books. They were, first of all, they were just an adorable couple. And, um, more than that, more than just being an adorable couple, they had a rhythm that worked very very well for them um but one of the things that um one of the lessons that they taught us was if you have a back catalog of books um every time a new one comes out you're gonna see a spike in sales for the other books Uh, um because people who are discovering your, your you know, your, people who read your first book will want to read your second. And then the new people who find your second will want to read the first and then the books going forward. Which is why series are so popular. Um, especially series where there's a standalone story. But maybe with some... Um maybe with some continuing threads. And, they're gonna, and they want to see how that storyline either resolves or how it started. So, that's something I've always kept in the back of my head. It's one of those lessons that just burned itself down, especially since I think of writing as a business, um, which I know doesn't always make people happy. And in fact, um, some people get very, very irritated with me because I do think of it as uh, more of a business than... um, More of a business than an art. that there's not an art to this, but um, my mind is always... How do I market this? Who am I aiming this at? How do I sell this? Um, and it, honestly, Will and I have talked about it, and it's one of the things um, that I think really impresses him. Like, even with Drunk Gossip, I was able to tell him who my audience was, how I reached them, and why I, why I don't use production notes, because this is us having conversation. Yes, it's me talking for... 30 minutes or however long. But, you know, I I don't think of you guys as listeners. I think of you guys as friends. And y'all are listening as I'm telling you what's going on. And one day, I hope you use the anchor feature where you can leave me a voice message. And then we can actually have conversations. Or I can react to what you tell me. Um, but... Um, back to the main point here. We're talking about, um, we're talking about having a back catalog. So, one of the things my brain did was think, I wonder if this would work with articles. When I had Generation Gossip, it definitely did. Um, especially towards the end when I would skip... Days, weeks, months. My page views were very steady. Uh, it, it, there was a slow decline, but for the most part, I had built up enough. Um, I had I had built up enough article um, backlog, where you couldn't really tell. Where the decline was coming from. That I don't think that's the right way to say that, but we're going to go with it for right now. Um, uh, and the same thing happened with vocal. I haven't written it there in a couple of months, and yes, there there's been a decline in my my page views. But overall, I'm still averaging a lot of people reading my work. Now. Some people will argue and say, well, that's because you're writing crime. Some people will say, you know, it's it's because, you know, you have sex articles. Yes, all of that is true. But if you take yourself out of it, I mean, uh, sex articles, true crime articles are evergreen, which means the facts of the cases or the facts of the, you know, the suggestions or whatever, are usually not going to change very much. Um, And as proof, I wrote about Anna Sorkin, who we've talked about on this podcast. She um, defrauded banks and friends. So I have two articles on Vocal about her, one dealing with the friend aspect, one dealing with the business aspect. And then I wrote about her again over on HVY. And um, once again, people are just reading it. Um, And HVY, I'm actually the number two most read writer in the world and I'm number one in the United States. So, the whole point of that is, fellow writers, get a back catalog. Um, Get a back catalog um, on any site that you're writing for. And then if you need to take time off or if you need a vacation or whatever the case might be, you can take one without worry because at the end of the day you're going to have these backlogs um and you know I was looking at some true crime books just to see how they're selling and I was comparing like my style to uh, to those that have really broken through NW or M. William Phelps is probably the most popular true crime writer at this point, um, now that Anne Rule has sadly passed on. And I have quite a few of his books. I've read them. He's very serious, very investigative reportery. And, um, you know, it just. It just doesn't, um, it doesn't feel right for me. So I was going through Facebook and, you know, I've been part of this group. And someone um, made a comment about another person's article being more of an essay than, than journalistic. And that's when it dawned on me. When I write the, like, when I was, um, not when I was working, I'm still working on Love You to Death, but with Love You to Death, um, these are more essays than, um, hardcore journalists, um, feats of whatever, and that's okay, because it works for me and it'll help me get a backlog of true crime books a lot faster. When, and now that I've accepted that this is what it is, you know, I'll be able to bang out um, Love You To Death, which I already have the cover for, cover reveal coming soon. Um, I'll be able to, um, I'll be able to bang that out. I'll be able to bang out um, The Florida Man, Book a lot faster because now I've accepted my style and by accepting my style, I'm going to get a backlog faster. And I'm sure you're wondering what the hell my point is. And it's just get a backlog. Get a backlog of articles on every single platform that you possibly can as soon as you can. Um, because the more you do, the more money you're going to make. And the more you'll be able to build up your um the more you'll be able to build up your um fan base. The, I mean that's honestly how I got to number number one with HVY. And I just realized I've been talking for 10 minutes, so I'm gonna go and come right back. And I'm back. And yes. I, this has been a tribute of sorts to Toni Morrison. Um, you know, she was one of those celebrities who... ...really didn't encourage gossip. Um, she did her job, stayed largely out of the limelight. And honestly, was more or less just... A really decent human being, and it's always interesting to me that um, that this is the case um, with these celebrities, um, and. You know, it's obviously wonderful. Um, Yes, we know people behave badly. Every day people cheat on their spouses. Uh, They do drugs and all of these things. But somehow, we are more intrigued when it's a celebrity doing it. Um, And... I, I've never quite figured out why. I think it's the it's the glamour and the money of it all, to be honest. And and the facade. Um almost like the fall from grace. But <clears throat> um, so as, as I start to segue out of talking about Tony Morrison, which we haven't done since the first segment, but I just wanna say one more time. I hope she's resting in peace. I hope her family and friends are... um, take comfort in knowing how much Toni Morrison meant to the entire world. And we're going to close out um, on a little bit of a happier note, hopefully. Um, You know, I, I was just talking about um, like celebrities celebrity falling from great celebrity gossip and whatnot. And one of the things I realized that I never really talked about was how I got into this. Uh, how I got into um, reporting on celebrities and celebrity gossip. So, the answer is actually very quite simple. As a kid, I loved reading Um. I, I mean, I still love reading, but I would read anything I could get my hands on, um, and then a lot of times, I could get my hands on the National Enquirer, so I would always read it, and as I grew up and started making my own money, I would, I would buy it, especially if there was a celebrity I liked on the cover, and I wanted to know what was happening, and that fascination kind of grew, you know. I and I read People. Um, you guys know I re- read the gossip blogs every day, um, but I also read like People. I not as much anymore, but I still read the National Enquirer sometimes. Um, us and all of those um, type of things. Uh, you know, and again, with us, I don't read it as much. Um, people, I don't read... Like, I read people more for the true crime stuff than I do their interviews. Because they're always puff pieces. And i I, just not really into that, honestly. Um, there's a reason why people, people pieces really don't go viral. And it's because their journalists don't ask the questions and the celebrities don't offer them the good stuff. So as I've as I've started like expanding my career and thinking about things, I started researching people in the past. Um Cindy Adams, Hedda Hopper, Luella Parsons. And, you know, in each of those women were very, very powerful on their own. Um, you know, lately I've been reading, because I'm planning a book, I'm just kind of, um, feeling out the time period, trying to get it all right. Um... Um, I've been reading a lot about, like, Confidential, the very popular tabloid from the 1950s and 60s. And, of course, there's the lovely Jackie Collins, um, who, more than anyone, really opened the eyes about celebrity behavior. Now, of course, she never named names. Um, But she once said that real life was wilder than anything she could ever write. And she actually had to tame some of her stories down because they weren't believable. And... Y'all know I love my Jackie. Um, she was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And I would, be half as, I would be lucky to have half the career she had. Um, and, you know, and I think about things like... Sometimes I get sad that there's never going to be an, another new Jackie Collins book. And then I'm like, oh, I could write one. You know, I could write a Jackie Collins-type book. And one of these days I actually will, I've been toying with an idea, um, while I've been on this extended hiatus, well extended vacation, I'm not really on hiatus, um, uh, but while while I've been away from New York, I've been toying with this idea and it started out as kind of a play on Tales of the City because I was really obsessed with that. But now it, I, it's kind of coming together, coalescing into what I want it to be. Um, you know, I was, tr- I was really trying to force it into a format that I don't think it would have worked in. But now I, I've kind of worked it out and I think I've actually um, gotten it done. So, that'll be coming soon. Um, And, you know, Jackie really focused a lot on Hollywood, which I will be too, because Hollywood is rife with uh, stories. Um, Even if you just take the line items alone. Um, And, but, and, and that's how Hedda Hopper made her career. You know, Hedda was... A fascinating woman. I don't know why there's never been a movie just about her, because she was... Oh, my goodness. Fantabulous. And I think whoever played her would probably win awards, depending on how um, the movie was written and how she was played. Um, Conversely... Well, not conversely. I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. (laughs) You know, and one of the things I've been really wanting to do is a book about, like, a big book of celebrity conspiracies. And then I was thinking, well, um, you know, I mentioned yesterday in the writing segment, or in the last episode about the writings, in the writing segment, about wanting to um, do more short story books. So, there's a chance that I'm going to take, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take some of these conspiracies and twist them into, um, historical fiction short stories. Will it work? I don't know. But we're sure going to have fun trying um, so that's going to do it for the writing episode of Drunk Gossip this week um, like I said we'll return with uh, with gossip um, later on this week I just I really do want to send condolences to Tony Morrison's family and friends and other loved ones one last time and Tony, thank you for everything For the legacy you've left. And thank you all for listening as always. Until next time. Cheers.